Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and of course we have Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? You guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course challenge the status quo that always needs challenging. Oh, are we going to challenge it today? And oh boy, <laughs> are we challenging one today. That one saved always saved us spicy. I feel like this one here is going to definitely uh, get under some people's skin. But uh, before we it get... It shouldn't, though. It shouldn't. It really shouldn't. But it will, because it's challenging a doctrine that most Catholics and Protestants hold to alike. Mm -hmm. So this will be interesting. Now, before we get into that, though, guys, please check out our channel where my apologetics uh, my apologetics classes are being dropped now. They're being dropped a month after I teach them. So if you want them right away, though, and you don't want to wait a month for them, all you have to do is join our Patreon. You can even just do a dollar a month to join that, and you get access to them right away. And what's cool about that is that you support us with, and, you know, support us financially, and it allows us to save up for better equipment. Like right now, we're saving up for a second camera. Um, that's something we really want to do. And once in a while, it allows us to like give to like a charity or a nonprofit or someone in need. Uh, we use that as kind of a overall ministry fund that mm -hmm. we we use. And uh, so. Thank you guys who do support us. You patrons are awesome. We really appreciate every dollar. We don't deserve it, especially with the low production of this show. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, also, don't forget to join our Church Split Apologetics page on Facebook. It is just literally the Church Split colon Apologetics. There is an open discussion group. You can interact with us directly, and we try to engage it there, and you can also engage with some of our friends who are the admins and other people who are actually are very knowledgeable on this stuff, and it's a very much a non-censored uh, apologetics page. We just ask yeah. that you don't do ad hominem. We are not a reform group. We're not a progressive group. And we make that part of the group rules that we're not trying to promote either one of those things. But if you're reformed or you are progressive and you have questions and whatnot, you can join the group and still discuss. We're not so, going to sit there and say you can't. One of my favorite things about that group is just like the really interesting and unique questions that we get. We get some interesting and ones. And it's not sure. like they're asking us. They're just asking the group. And there's just so many really interesting answers. And people are bringing scripture to to bear on those questions. And it's really interesting. I like just multi paragraph Yeah, multi-paragraph responses. Like people actually giving thoughtful discourse, something that we're really big on. And then the other cool thing is that uh, – it's fun. Like, it's a funny group. Every mm -hmm. Friday, we have Fallacy Friday, which is a meme drop day where you can roast anything and anyone in the group and just have a great time. Mostly roast you. Mostly roasting me, yeah. <laughs> much, much, to, much to my chagrin. There was one day that they made memes making fun of you a little bit, and I reveled bit. in that. So, yeah, I said a little bit wasn't the important part there. And, of course, guys, don't forget to check out our latest project with Black Sheep Theology. You can check it out on YouTube. We have our first video up. This includes people uh, like your some of our favorites, uh, Idol Killer, Provisionist Perspective, God is Open, um, Christian Evidentialist Podcast, which is what um, Faith Because of Reason, Dave, David Palman, that was it's his little platform there, right? Um, and we have all sorts of other people involved in that. Uh, also, the Bible Brodown is part of us, and they're awesome. Those guys are great, by the way, mm -hmm. um, especially because uh, I know for a fact that uh, they game. Uh, we were talking about Elden Ring <laughs> the other day, and it made me very happy. So um, with that being said, check that out, guys. I'm still miffed, though, that... It has that many subs so quickly, and that, that one video has that many views because it took us a long time to get to that point. It did take a while. It took a, yeah, it took a good minute. So it's just like, wow, you get a small platform. And it's not huge, but it's just like, wow, that grew pretty quickly. You know, got 100 yeah. subs almost overnight, and it was great. So we're going to keep going. We're going to keep pushing because we understand that theology is a niche thing, so you're not going to end up having probably, you know, 3 million subscribers. That's not a thing. That's So anyhow, we're now we're going to get to our favorite comment because <laughs> – um, 
as per mention of the low production of the show, Brian picked out this wonderful comment and let us bask in its wisdom. This was this was so awesome. So this is from an old video that we had more than a year ago. Um, Jack Johnson said, I literally can't think of a more boring show than this YouTube channel. It's kind of unbelievable someone would waste their time making video for no one to see or care about. Yet, somehow Jack Johnson found it and took the time to leave that really thoughtful and gracious comment. We appreciate it, Jack. Thanks. So congratulations. <laughs> you played yourself. Uh, you're on so our funny. channel. I, I got <laughs> such a chuckle out of that. <laughs> Whenever, well, it's just like once in a while I got somebody the other day because of our our stance on Once Saved, Always Saved. Uh, they were just like commenting like, yep, that's it. You guys have gone too far anymore. You're like neo-Orthodox. You're XYZ. Uh, you know, I'm unsubbing. And I'm like... This is a YouTube channel, bro, not an airport. You don't have to announce your departure. People well, you, like to do that, though. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I'm mad at you. I'm out. And then other people are like, thanks, man. I subbed because of this. Now, it is nice to know when someone subs because it's like, oh, so that's content. That's good. But if you don't, if you just get mad at our opinions and uh, we're called the church split, bro, you thought that this was <laughs> not going to have some sort of spiciness to it? Like, yeah. I, I feel like it's all even out in the intro, the name, like everything about even our intro is our like snarky a little bit. Like, you know, what you're, you should know what you're getting into. Right. Yeah. Like, anyway. So now let's challenge the status quo harder. Yeah. Everyone's like, stop, stop it. And we're like, <laughs> stop challenging the status quo. We're like, you know what? I'm going to yeah. challenge it even harder. Here we, Here we go. So uh, today we're discussing original sin. Now, when we're discussing original sin and I say I don't believe in original sin, I'm not talking about the event. Of course, the event of original sin took place. Um, that's not the argument. The argument is that what's called the doctrine of original sin, or if we want to be more clear, we could say Augustinian original sin, because mm -hmm. this is a doctrine that is taught by both Catholics and Protestants alike, and it comes from Augustine, primarily. He's the one who taught it. That's why Augustinian original sin is the important part there, because other people have different ways, other groups have other ways of discussing the nature of man, right? Yeah. So, uh, so what is original sin, Brian? Yeah, so the doctrine of original sin essentially says that as a result of Adam's sin with Eve in Eden, God cursed all men to be born stained by the sin, possessing a corrupted nature and sharing in Adam's guilt. Right, and it, maybe not God cursed, but it's the idea that you inherit, right? Like yeah. his, his guilt is transferred to you. I think that's yeah, probably as more. a result of the fall, this is what you get. Yeah, you are born sinful. Whether some people view it as God cursed us with. With that, other people believe that now it just passes on. I've heard different explanations. The point is, no matter what, you are born with Adam's sin nature and his guilt, right? So you're born a sinner. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. Now, this is not a, a, a doctrine you and I let go of quickly. No, it's not. It's something we both held on to for a long time, and mm -hmm. it kind of... It was a kind of a hard ripping of a Band-Aid as we were, we were kind of going through this and going, I don't know, I don't know. We knew something didn't feel right, and you guys probably have that too with some, some different doctrines like... I believe this, but I don't know. Just something doesn't quite sit right. Yeah, there, you feel like you don't quite have a full grasp meshing, on it. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's not cohesive. It's, there's something, I'm missing a piece here. Um, because you're like, well, of course, mankind are sinners because they sin. But then uh, what was what really got me rolling on it was, first off, um, when I really did a soteriology discussion and really was studying total depravity. And I was seeing the verses that they were using to teach that for Calvinists to push total depravity. And I was like, that's not really what those verses are saying. Yeah. So I kind of started really studying the nature of man a little bit from that. And then I started thinking about it more. And then when I started studying Judaism, studying what they said on some stuff, I was like, mm, that makes some sense. So then I looked it up. I was like, all right, I'm going to, I was at work one day and I was going to be in the warehouse for a long time. So I looked up Original Sin on YouTube just to hear it discussed. And I found a cool playlist by Idol Killer. And I listened to it and it was like, oh my gosh, somebody else is like, 
wrestling with these things. Like, this is super cool. And that was actually um, my introduction to Warren. So with that being said, this was not something we let go of easily. But once we were confronted with the evidence and the more and more we dug, the more and more we could not in good conscience say that we believe in Augustinian original sin anymore. Yeah. And I think everyone believes that something happened at the fall. Correct. Humanity changed in some way. There's something that occurred, and now there's something they're different. We Our relationship with God is different. There was a need for a Savior that we didn't have mm-hmm. before the fall. So obviously something changed. We're not, we're not denying that, and we're not denying that, that Adam and Eve sinned and that caused a problem. Um, we're just denying specifically that when babies are born, that they're born already guilty, deserving of hell because of Adam's sin. Right, because that's what that people have debated for forever. Well, if we're born sinful, why do babies go to heaven, not hell? Well, and then so yeah, some people that just believe babies go to hell. Then you have some Calvinists who just say, well, God just elects some of the babies, not all the babies. Yeah. And then you have other people who are like, well, no, I think God gives grace to children. And it's like, okay, but how? But original sin makes that extremely difficult. Um, and especially as a huge pro-life person. And, I mean, we even say, uh, we say this on a practical level. We're going to get to that more later, right? But the idea is that we say all the time, like, oh, don't abort babies. They're the most innocent among us. And it's like, well, if original sin is true, they're not. Yeah. Right? But we're going to talk about that more soon. So, um, now, Brian, I know for you, this was something that you, you know, you and I both wrestled with. And I think you and I both came to that conclusion quickly. But didn't you reach it sooner than I did? Yeah, I think I kind of was like, yeah, I think this is BS now. And I've moved on. <laughs> then I was taking, I was taking like my sweet time with it. Yeah. Um, as I tend to do. Um, and then it was funny because the atonement, I changed my mind on like in, a, in an instant. And it took you a bit yeah. to wrap your head around it. Yeah, I was like, talk me through this. Yep. So, point is, is that uh, I get this up. Uh, actually all the time that we were accused of always wanting to be right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we actually challenge ourselves regularly and we argue this out ourselves. So that whole thing is like, no one wants to be wrong, but you can't sit there and say that we're not willing to be challenged when we literally are confessing right now that we were challenged and we had to change our mind. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, so with that being said, um, there's there's a great way to think of original sin. Now, when some people are like, what do you mean like born sinners? Now, here's the thing. You have to consider the logic that is that it stems from. If original sin is true and we can truly inherit someone else's guilt, then especially conservative Christians should say nothing against critical race theory. Mm-hmm. The CRT would actually have validity to it, right? Yeah, essentially the, the most modern version of Augustinian original sin. That essentially that Americans are born with this essentially original sin of America's first sin, which was slavery and racism, and uh, and we have to essentially apologize for either the race that we're born into or the, the things that our ancestors did that caused us to have some kind of privilege at this point in time, and we have to atone for that. We have to ask for repentance for it, and we have to... Um, uh, essentially change our minds on on all of reality because of, of what happened here. And that even goes for people that are maybe second-generation immigrants, and they, were, they had no family on this continent at all while the original sin of America was going on, but that doesn't matter. They're saying we inherit the, the guilt of that through 
systemic racism and everything else. So therefore, white people are guilty uh, to this day for the sins and actions of the past. That would mean the Japanese are still guilty for what they did um, in Nanking. Yeah. This would mean that you know the the Persians are still guilty for what they did to the Greeks, and on and on and on and on we could go. You boil it down, you're essentially guilty for someone else's misgivings. Right. And you're you're personally responsible even though that you didn't commit the sin. You didn't commit the bad act. Right. So you are guilty whether or not you, you committed the act or not. Mm -hmm. Which, and you're born in it, right? Yep. You're born with that guilt. And when you really think about it, that's kind of messed up because I, if you have no part of it, you never had a choice in it, then how can I repent of it? Mm -hmm. I didn't have a choice. Um, if I can't do otherwise, how can I be held accountable? Where it's like, because like Romans 1 is like, you're without excuse. Oh, man. Mankind, you're without excuse. Well, if I'm born sinful and I didn't have a choice to sin but be born sinful, I have an excuse. Yeah. Like, literally, I was born this way. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I also think of um, how this gives rise to... Like homosexuality, where people are like, well, I was born this way. And actually, her, uh, a, a friend of mine in youth group was struggling with homosexual attraction. He went to the youth pastor, and the youth pastor was working with him. And he goes, well, um, he's like, well, of course you were born that way. You were born a sinner, is what he said. <laughs> and it's like, whoo, think about that for a second. If you're born a sinner, and you're then you're saying, yeah, they would be born that way. People would have to be born the way that they are, which means pedophiles are born that way, which means homosexuals are born that way, which means murderers are born that way. And we could go on to every single sin, thieves, everyone else. They're just born that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, But remember, somehow they're without excuse. Yeah, That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But, I mean, we'll talk about that as we go through. I'm not trying to straw man here. But there's a lot of groups that actually redefine this. Uh, there's a lot of Arminians that redefine original sin um, that aren't, like, Augustinian in it. There's a lot of Wesleyans that do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, Messianic movements, uh, the, the Orthodox Church, they don't believe in Augustinian original sin. They're not Augustinian at all, um, which is why they're actually kind of attractive to me um, <laughs> as far as, like, any of the old school versions are concerned. Yeah. Anabaptists, things, people like that don't. So... Uh, before we get called a heretic, and I've, we've been called uh, we've been called recently that we're neo-orthodox, even though literally all the positions we we're talking about are in the ancient church. Like <laughs> I don't think I've promoted a single position on here so far that I have not been able to find in ancient church tradition at some point, um, or Judaism, which was connected to the early church. Like you know what I mean? Like I'm like, how is this heresy? This isn't neo-orthodoxy. This is just orthodoxy. Like. Yeah. If you can keep your Calvinism, which really didn't get fully articulated until the 16th century and still be called Orthodox, back up off me, homebro. Just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's neo-Orthodox. <laughs> right, exactly. Just because it's not in the Protestant mainstream, because most of Protestant doctrines became huge in the 16th century and then developed from there and then kind of redeveloped and kind of circled their way back into some old ones. It's really interesting when you read it. Um, but anyway, we're going to continue forward. So lest we get called... Uh, say we're strawmanning and accuse of such, uh, we wanted to pull up the Westminster Confession in Chapter 6. Now, before we read the Westminster Confession and what it says on original sin, I just want to say that the Westminster Confession is by far the most overrated Christian confession in church history. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I, I get so tired. Like, so I ran into some Presbyterians downtown. They're trying to witness to me once. And I was like, hey, don't worry. I'm already saved. I already know the Lord. And they're like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, well, because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm a pastor in the area. No big deal. Guys, carry onward. They're like, well, how do you know you're saved? I'm like, because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I repent and believe. And then they're like, like well, uh, how do you know you're one of them? I was like, well, what do you mean? And then they start trying to actually like, they made like tulip part of their thing. Like they made election, like part of this whole thing. And I was like, well, I'm more this way. You know, I believe more of a middle knowledge approach. And they're like, well, that doesn't oh, exist. No. <laughs> and they get all sorts of bent out of shape. 
and then when I asked him to, well, what is, the, you know, well, justify your position then. And then he quotes the Westminster Confession to me. And I get so annoyed with this because I'm like, well, I know what the Westminster s- says, but Westminster makes statements. It doesn't mm-hmm. argue a position. It just makes statements. A statement isn't necessarily an argument. and doesn't necessarily mean that the, the position flows from the one to the next. It doesn't mean that it is completely cohesive either. So, yeah, and one that's drawn from several presuppositions, as we're going to see in just a exactly. second. Exactly. So with that being said, Brian, let's jump right into the Westminster Confession. I'll let you take the thunder. Yeah, I, we'll start at the beginning here, but I'm only going to read through point four. So our first parents being seduced by the, the subtlety and to Jesus <laughs> Satan. I don't know why I put this in cursive. Sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. Their, this their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purposed to order it to his own glory. By this sin, they fell from the original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Now here's where it gets really important to what we're talking about today. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From the original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. And it continues from there. This, there's so many things wrong with it, though. Like the more, I, the more I look at the Westminster Confession, I'm like, wow. This is, all comes from really corrupted, bad doctrine, and I will say what I think. Look, again, you can disagree with me. That's fine, but I think it's bad doctrine. I'm not going to apologize for what I actually think, okay? People get mad at us on this program. We're like, well, why would you say it? Why can't you be more gracious? Guys, I'm talking about my positions. You don't have to agree with me. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Right there it says, they fell from their original righteousness and communion of God and so became dead in sin, wholly defiled in all parts and faculties of the soul and body. We see this actually is a- absolutely not true because we see people do good. Yeah. Right? So we see, like, uh, like for example, my daughter loves to share her toys with me. She's like, here you go. And she walks away, and she smiles. And then what, what it irritates me when I tell people, like, when kids do something nice, I'm like, well, they do something nice. I'm like, well, it's because it makes them feel good. It's that sinful desire to want to feel good. I'm like, wait. So we're not supposed to have any sort of good feeling when we do something morally good. Yeah. Don't cheat on your wife because it just makes you feel good. Yeah, like, don't, yeah, like, don't, when you got married, selfish. That, yeah, when you got married, you know, that was a selfish joy. Like, get out of here. Like, it's just, it, no, good deeds will create good feelings, and that's a good thing. Yeah, if you can write off every righteous act as just somehow underlying and selfishly motivated, then then righteous acts mean nothing, and having the righteousness of Jesus doesn't actually mean anything. Well, that's what Augustine believed, that all, but basically all those things were done through selfish motives. But we'll talk about it as we continue. So, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of sin was computed. Well, I think you have some notes uh, on this, so let's talk about this. So, um, oh, actually, no, I'll make some commentary. I do want to make commentary. So same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all posterity, descending from them by, or, by, them by ordinary generation. So it says, again, they're the root. So all the guilt of this sin. So I am guilty for Adam's sin. So, But I wasn't in the garden. I didn't make that choice. I didn't make any choice whatsoever with that, but I'm somehow guilty of it. And that's considered righteous. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess uh, if, I don't know. You sinned. Can we say that uh, Braden's guilty for it? Sure. Apparently. You're, you're guilty for it, too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, it says, and made opposite to all good. We are made opposite to all good, it says. 
Meanwhile, we're created image of God, so we can't be made uh, completely opposite to all good. That's mm-hmm. a, that is a good. And then also, it says we have the knowledge of good and evil. But they always want to go evil, 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 and they, we, we, we miss the good, right? We'll talk about that, I know, as we go. Holy inclined to all evil. Really? Well, if that's the case, then wouldn't there be a lot more evil acts? And then I know that a lot of people respond, well, the only reason why is because God's grace constrains us. Uh, well, then why does God constrain only some evil, not all of it? Like, that <laughs> get, like it, then you run into that logical fallacy, it, like that logical contradiction. It starts, starts turning into a problem. So do proceed all actual transgression. All right, moving on. All right, so when did this doctrine begin in church history? We already kind of told you a little bit, but it was not an orthodox uh, teaching in the original ter- church, nor was it taught in Judaism. Actually, Judaism, if you talk to Jews, uh, they find this doctrine actually rather reprehensible. <laughs> um, so some came into the church, this came into the church through Augustine, who is specifically known as Augustine of Hippo or Augustine. Um, so Augustine defined original sin as what he called concupiscence. And actually, you can check out these two articles here, and you can take a look at those. And they point this stuff out. I'm not, we are not new critics to this. And one of those articles I'm pointing you to was somebody who's trying to, like, defend Augustine's original sin, but kind of, like, (laughs) redefine it. And the other one is showing the problem with Augustinian original sin due to in vitro fertilization and other reproductive uh, sciences today. And we'll talk probably more about that as we go on. But the point is, is that, he said he believed that it was concupiscence. So this is not something that's new to me. It's not something that mm-hmm. only Warren McGrew teaches. Everyone knows that this is what where he gets his doctrine from. Yep. So the idea of concupiscence. Now think about it. When we say the word consequence, when I say a consequence, you instantly think negative, right? That's bad. Consequences equal bad. But I could say, well, Brian, you got a raise today as a consequence of you working so hard and diligently at your job. Yeah. Consequence could be meritorious. Right. But usually has a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. So Augustine only knew Latin, and concupiscence was the word in Latin, which usually always carried with it a negative connotation. And the idea of concupiscence, which is uh, uh, at its base layer, I mean, you might already notice that concupiscence is similar to concubine, um, which is, of course, a woman, right, that you would have sex with. So right here, uh, concupiscence, a base sexual desire is what it means. So it means a base and sexual desire. And so he believed that sin was really sexually transmitted. It was a sexually transmitted condition to be a sinner. As such, all men are born with their will, mind, and body corrupt and thus deserving of God's wrath because they inherited the sin through concupiscence, um, through the sexual act. And actually, I've read a lot on this, and he actually gets pretty detailed. He literally thinks that it is through the act of sex that sin is transferred, which is why people are pointing out the problem of in vitro fertilization, because there's no sexual act involved in that. So then wouldn't that mean that those children who are born should be born without sin? Got a whole bunch of innocent babies. (laughs) Right. So it causes some problems there for Augustinian original sin. So that's why he actually is the one who taught that um, that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He said, because she had to be born without concupiscence, without the sexual act entirely. So because and that, so therefore the virgin birth spared him from inheriting the sinful nature. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all now. And granted, remember that that's not taught in scripture that that's what the the point of the virgin birth was. Nope. The point was really to probably reflect his you know father who is wiser than he right or uh, to because then if you go back into the Tanakh it said what did it say? Uh, this shall be a sign unto you. Mm-hmm. So. 
just a thought is a sign, and it was to reflect who his real father was. Yeah, and Augustine was essentially saved out of uh, hedonism, so he already had a really you know bad view of sex already. So it kind of makes sense that this is some of the conclusions well, he mean, came to. He admitted that sexual desire was like his biggest sin because mm-hmm. he was really into it, right? Like he was really into like the whole Greek like sex culture. So it makes sense that he'd do a pendulum swing when he converts to Christianity and he wants to become chaste and sexually disciplined that he would pendulum yeah. swing, like it's all bad. When, shame on the church for running with it. <laughs> right. Well, because, and then I was thinking about this too when I was re- doing, I was did a, had to do a research paper on, on it. And as I was prepping, I was like, that's so weird because he's saying in concupiscence, the sexual act is a sinful act. But God in multiple parts says, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. I was like, so the very command by which he is commanding us to do, he is commanding us then to co- commit a sexual act, mm-hmm. a sinful act then. Because Augustine's idea, okay, I'm going to get a little too graphic here. I apologize to our listeners. But Augustine's idea was literally that before the fall, sex was not something that was done for enjoyment. That it was something like the man would just insert and just ejaculate on will. And that she would just get pregnant basically on the will. Like she'd be like, all right, cool. Like this is very mechanical, if that makes sense. Like time for a kid. Bam. (laughs) Um, and where that is not at all like what we see in scripture, that but he's assuming that because he assumes sex equals sin, because mm-hmm. sex equals lust. And it, I think we all know there's a difference between good sexual desire with like a spouse um, or even a controlled sexual desire as you are dating as opposed to completely given into a sexual desire. Yeah. Otherwise, sexual immorality has no meaning, and everything is sexual immorality. Exactly. Then, then who cares, right? Because mm-hmm. even in my marriage, I'm apparently being lustful, which he basically taught this. Yeah. Not basically, he did. Like he believed that all sex engaged in lust. So anyway, Augustine defined original sin as concupiscence. That's the point. So Augustine says this: concupiscence, therefore, as the law of sin which remains in the members of the body of death, is born with infants. In baptized infants, it is deprived of guilt, is left for the struggle of life, but pursues with no condemnation, much such as die before the struggle. Unbaptized infants, it implicates as guilty and as children of wrath, even if they die in infancy, draws into condemnation. So babies don't go to heaven, according to Augustine. Yeah, unless they're baptized, then that's washing away the guilt part. Right, the, the, but they still remains in their nature. Mm-hmm. Did you guys catch that? Like, no, the, if you baptize your baby, it, it removes the guilt from them, but it does not remove the nature nor their fleshly desires. Did you ever wonder why we baptize babies? That's why. Right, you got, you, yeah, because this was one of the many teachings. Now, infant baptism existed before Augustine, but... Yeah, that's one of the big reasons why. What all the priests and stuff will tell you a lot of times is that's washing away the original guilt, especially in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. All right, John Calvin then, who's, of course, my favorite theologian. He's like, hold my beer, Augustine. Yeah, he <laughs> goes, for our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. Those who term its concupiscence use a word not very inappropriate, provided it was added, this, however, many will by no means concede, that everything which is in man, from the intellect to the will, from the soul and even to the flesh, is defiled and pervaded with this concupiscence, or to express it more briefly, that the whole man is in himself nothing else than concupiscence. 
So literally, he, I mean, but this is what's weird is that they'll be like, you're, you're sinful. You're, in fact, uh, Dr. Flowers talked about this when we had him on the, on the program. He talked about how like, it's like a, com a competition in Protestants on how horrible you can describe mankind, like how vile, wretched, and much of a worm he is. And this right there is right there. Like, but they want to talk about how evil, sinful, and depraved, and to the, he's corrupted down to his very soul and being. And then they go, but he still created the image of God, and that's good. <laughs> we don't know how to square the circle or how that image of God necessarily reflects the reality because yeah. they just want to admit the fact that maybe, possibly, you're not all evil. And I think it actually comes from, dare I say, a good desire to put sin in its proper place, to actually show how offensive, uh, it, is. offensive it is to God and how different it is from a holy and perfect God. Mm -hmm. So I get the goal here. I think it's just maybe one or two or seven bridges too far. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, basically he says our nature is devoid of goodness completely. Our evil acts can never be idle. So in other words, you only do evil. You can't not do evil. You'll never stop. And everything is defiled by sin, such as the soul, flesh, intellect, and your will. It's all of it. <laughs> And then in 1664, the London Baptist Confession, Article 6, says, First Eve, then Adam, being seduced, did wittingly and willingly fall into disobedience and transgression of the commandment of their great creator. For, the which death, for, for then which death came upon all and reigned over all, so that all since the fall are conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity, and so, by nature, children of wrath and servants of sin, subject of death, and all the calamities due to sin in this world and forever being considered in the state of nature without relation to Christ. Now, real quick, I want to mention that one of the biggest things that annoy me, I hear all the time, by nature, children of wrath, by nature, children of wrath. And they keep quoting that part in Ephesians. And if you guys took two seconds to actually study what it means by nature, <laughs> it means by habit. You created what a they did. habit. So you were doing something and you created a habit, so now you are by nature. Consider yourself, consider something like a smoker, right? Someone who chain smokes all day long. Mm -hmm. And they go to quit. By nature, then, they're going to keep wanting to grab something from the pocket, light it, and put it up to the mouth. I, I hear one yeah. of the biggest things that uh, chain smokers say that they constantly want to do this. It's or like a muscle memory. all you that are addicted to social media, right. the You're five seconds like, you have free, you grab for your phone. You don't even, you start scrolling on Facebook without even thinking about it, don't you? Will's already starting a Twitter debate. Actually, in fact, right now, hey, what's up, David? <laughs> David Paulman just uh, liked to post. Anyhow. <laughs> so, anyhow. But you feel that compulsion. You actually have a nature to gravitate to social media. You are addicted to because it. Because you created a habit. Mm -hmm. you so could, One could say you're a slave to it. Right. But does that mean you can, you don't have the will to stop? No. So, again, there's so many presuppositions in this. Now, what I want to do is I think we already covered this a little bit in our Genesis series, but I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to build our case against uh, Augustinian original sin from the top, okay? Uh, so, Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 15 says this, The Lord... God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of, of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. Pretty straightforward. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, no touchy. That's for God only. God only knows good and evil, not you. Is that yeah. pretty fair, Brian? Good and evil. Good and evil. So... 
Then, of course, a serpent comes onto the scene, and I'm just going to skip to um, verse 4, where the serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die, because remember, that's what God promised would happen if you took of the tree. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, right? You'll receive consciousness, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you'll be like God what? Knowing what? Knowing good and evil. So they know both? Yeah. And that's not Satan lying on that specific sentence because God says it himself at the end of this chapter and says they have become like us, knowing good and evil. Right. He literally acknowledges they have become like one of us, knowing good from evil. And then if you go, God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, right? And then he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, of course, a lot of people are, see this as, of course, um, the first prophecy to, G, to Jesus or how God's going to defeat Satan through the seed of the woman. Because he goes to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So we have pain, pain, desire. Right. Yep. That's he, what changed. So we have pain and desire. And then he says, curse is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. See, did not lie. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also for the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is all important. Therefore the Lord sent him from the Garden of Eden. So what do we have here? Okay, so they sin. We have pain introduced. Yeah. Well, it's ending, it says increased pain. So it doesn't even say, like, pain didn't exist, but pain has increased mm -hmm. in childbearing, increased in, in working the field. Right. So pain is increased. Then you also have that they are both have knowledge of good and evil, right? They become like one of us. And then we also see that um, the tree of life was they were removed from, or else they'd live forever. Now, that's important because... It tells us something that the tree of life was doing something that's sustaining, mm -hmm. right? So it, within the garden, the tree of life sustained them. If they ate of it, they'd live forever. So they were removed from it, so now they're no longer sustained, mm -hmm. right? I yeah. think this is a good way to break this down because otherwise— an act of mercy. Right, there is—and it is. It's an act of mercy lest you live in a fallen creation forever, right? So um, that way one day you'll die. That way you can partake in a good in the great resurrection. We also see two things cursed. We see Satan cursed and the ground cursed. We don't actually see Adam cursed. We don't actually see Eve cursed. We see some consequences from their actions. We see pain and we see desire changing. Now, and I want to mention, make sure we mention this. People a lot of times think death is like a judgment from God. Like, it's a punishment of God, mm -hmm. which is what helps lead to penal substitution, which I, you, I already have a series going <laughs> on with that. But it's n it never says as a consequence of God, or, I mean, a punishment of God. It's merely like God states as a fact, you do it, you will surely die. Like, it's almost like it's something else is going to happen. Like, it's an external force that's going to take place. Because God is, everything within God is life and righteousness and good. Mm -hmm. So therefore to act in opposition to him, the opposite of him, right? In opposition means yeah. that you would result in sin, which is the opposite of righteousness, and death, which is the opposite of life. So in other words, if you choose to do that, it's not that he's cursing them with death, it's that they chose death and it's a corrupting force. Am I making sense here? Yep, exactly. So God, 
So, oh, now you're corrupted, and now you're separated from the tree of life, lest you live forever. So, um, now, what we, so what I propose, and what Brian and I propose, is very similar to the Jewish view and what other people have taught. Because, bottom line is, I don't think Augustinian original sin saying we're born evil, are, and John Calvin saying we're totally corrupt from the ground up, from our mind, body, soul, spirit, the whole nine yards, I don't think it is a fair representation of reality. Yeah, and you didn't read that at all. We didn't get any of that from Genesis 3. Did not say they are totally corrupt, born sinful, all their offspring through sex are going to be guilty of the sin that Adam and Eve just committed. Right. We don't see that. Not a bit. We see some things with nature changing, and we see a couple curses handed down. Mm -hmm. So, somebody to consider, for example, uh, our our friend Dan, we're going to have him on soon. Um, He was a veteran. He served in the front lines. He's been through a lot of crap. But Dan, uh, well, he, well, he's asked people before, like, consider for a second that there's been non-believers that he's known that has literally thrown themselves to into death on, in the war, in, like, right on the battlefield. Yeah, could you call that selfish? No, it's like, oh, that's selfish. He wanted to go out with glory. Really? Or he died selflessly, which is a good deed. Mm-hmm. He commits a good deed to die for his brothers in arms. I think of the unbelieving mother who would throw herself in front of a killer who was going to kill her child. Um, I think of the unbelieving father whose house is burning down. He saves his son, but yet burns alive himself to save his son. If we're commanded to judge righteous judgment and we can't even detect what is righteousness, then we are unable to judge what a righteous act is. Yeah, because you assume it's all corrupt. Now, what will happen is, like, well, they'll say, like, well, it's not that they can't do good. It's just that they will always want to do evil, too. It's like, well, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Because mm-hmm. they'll say it's not total depravity. It's utter depravity. You're talking about utter depravity, not total depravity. I'm like, there's really, no. If you read John Calvin and Augustine, there's not much wiggle room. You're corrupted through and through and through and through. Yeah. And how about instead of saying, well, maybe they have some selfish motives or, hey, maybe in their sin nature some goodness came out. And that whenever that goodness comes out, it just happens to the image of God. How about we just do what the Bible says? And just acknowledge the fact that mankind now has moral knowledge. We have knowledge of good and evil, mm-hmm. period. We have the knowledge of both. Now, here's the thing. So here's the proposal. It isn't sin that we are born with, but a corrupted moral fortitude caused by competing desires because we have the knowledge of both, and we have the weakness of the flesh. The Bible talks continually about the weakness of the flesh. Read Romans 7. Read so many places. It's the weakness of the flesh. We were not. There's a reason why God forbade it. It was the forbidden knowledge. We mm-hmm. were not supposed to have that because in our flesh we were weak. So what we know, what so if we have knowledge of good and evil, what we know we desire. And what we desire, we are tempted to do. Mm-hmm. And when we are, there's temptation, we act upon it, and to that it is sin. Yep. Does that sound like a Bible verse? That sounds like James. <laughs> Whoa, we're probably going to get to that. So Keep in mind that I think that's a way more accurate way to view this. So we now desire to do both good and evil, not just good, and we know the difference. Now, the difference why I say we have a corrupted moral fortitude is because mankind isn't perfect in their moral assessments. And they try, we try, but we have the weakness of the flesh. And because everyone else has the same weakness as us, and there's so many different cultures going on around us, we don't aren't able to always make a perfect call because we live in a corrupted world, and so we're mm-hmm. continually trying to wrestle with that, which is good. And that is also part of that wrestle, I think, that makes that our relationship with God so powerful. We're continually wrestling with what is the right thing to do. Like, yeah. I, I know the black and white parts, but when, when things get difficult, what principles are the, are the chief principles among them? Yeah, right? exactly. And that's not something Adam and Eve were struggling with because they were give, we are given temptation through our own desires 
Adam and Eve, or specifically Eve, was tempted by an external source, by mm -hmm. Satan. She did not have an evil desire to eat the tree. She was talked into it externally, and that's what introduced sin into nature, into the creation. And Eve succumbed to that temptation, and that's where it all started. Right. So we all sin, though, right? So we all sin, but not because we were already sinners at birth, but because we were born with two natures, and thus eventually will sin. Temptation from an external source was required to cause sin in the first place. And I want to talk about that for a second where it says not because we were already sinners at birth, but because we were born with two natures. Um, we all sin because we act out on it. We all act out on these at some point. And uh, I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but it's called the yetzers. A yetzer is what the Hebrews called um, a desire. So you have the yetzer hurrah, which is the evil desire, and the yetzer hatov, which is the good desire. Mm -hmm. And those that both desires exist within us. And if you think about it, how many times have you desired both good and evil things? Maybe even in the same situation, right? Yeah. So um, let's talk about the problems of original sin a little bit, Brian. Um, I would love for you to go ahead and chat about that for a second. Yeah, so obviously Jesus should come to mind, right? Jesus, we have a huge problem here, and this has created what I would say an influx of excessive doctrine and explanation to work around the presupposition of we have original sin. Um, so we understand that Jesus is of the offspring of Adam and Eve, right? We, that, we believe that prophecy when he's, God's talking to Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis is hinting at this or talking to Satan. Um, and then, you know, we have, we have some verses that actually go out of their way to state the genealogy of Jesus, right? You hear line of David, line of David, right? Well, David's of the going back to Abraham. Abraham goes back to Adam and Eve. So we all have, we have this singular line of human dissension from Adam and Eve, all genetics, right? And if that, that original sin is flowing through, then what excluded Jesus from the same problem that we have? What, how did he get, escape this original sin? It's transmitted through essentially conception, the Holy Spirit conceived in um, Mary, Jesus, so we still have this conception that has humanity and God, divinity. So we must ask ourselves, okay, well, in order for any of the work of, of Christ to make sense and work and offer us any atonement for our sins, he had to be perfect. And we have a lot of verses to support that Jesus was perfect, he, meaning he did not sin. Um, he wasn't born sinful, and he didn't do any sin while he was here. So how did Jesus get around being born without original sin? Right, you have John 19, where Pilate went out, uh, out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So, so Pilate didn't find any guilt in, in Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So yet without sin, but also we have that temptation piece. Isaiah 53, 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. So he's not lying through what he says. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb, without blemish or spot. No blemish or spot, no sin. Um, 1 Peter again, 2.22, He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, he was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you have an interesting kind of take on reading that, being sin sacrifice. That's a good, I think sin, it's, it's a sin offering. Yeah. Um, that, that Mounts has already broken this down. It's he, be, he who knew no sin became a sin offering for us. So um, it's that, he, that God doesn't, Jesus doesn't literally ontologically become sin. Even people who affirm original sin and penal substitutionary atonement uh, entirely redefine what that means. They just say, like, Jesus is more identified with their sin as opposed to become sin. So they take it figuratively. I'm just saying that it's actually a sin offering, but whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Because if you say Jesus became sin, it's like, oh, well, now he is sinful? Like, what does that mean? Because we just read... What does that mean for God if he's the incarnate God? Yeah. He has no blemish or spot. He didn't sin. There was no deceit in his mouth, right? First John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No sin. Okay, so two points we can take away from all those verses. Jesus never sinned, and Jesus had no sin in him. Like, he wasn't born with it. Mm -hmm. So we have, I think, very strong biblical evidence. At least I hope so. Otherwise... We're on a tenuous position as Christians that Jesus was perfect. He had no sin, and that's what made him the perfect sacrifice, being both fully man and fully God. I do want to touch on real quick that Hebrews, notice how it's said in Hebrews that though he was perfect, he was like us in every way, tempted like we were. And you go, well, how's that? How can God be per- tempted if he's perfect and holy and righteous? Remember what I said about the weakness of the flesh is why we don't have the best uh, moral rectitude? Well, uh, Jesus was in the flesh, so he was tempted like us in every way. He had the same desires as we have. He just ruled over them as God told Cain to do. Mm-hmm. So any sinful, the flesh, that any desire from the flesh, Jesus ruled over. So Any evil desire, because he had good desires, right, too. Right, he did have good desires. So keep, it, keep that in mind. It's like, well, that's actually, that's a good point. Like, how can he if, he, if mankind's born evil and all this stuff, and he's tempted like us in every way, well, if he's like us in every way, he's tempted like us, so he was born completely sinful, but no, he wasn't born sinful. Okay, but he was tempted like us who were born sinful and can't do otherwise. Yeah. How do you square that circle? It just yeah. How about we just admit the fact that maybe Jesus was born with the the flesh like us, just the weakness of the flesh, not the sinful flesh, but the the flesh, right? So um, the sinful flesh becomes sinful when sin is acted out upon. But continue forward, Brian, or do you want me to take this part? Yeah, I'll go for it. So. You just said square circle, but that's what I just had in my notes. But how do we square this original sin circle with this idea of a perfect Jesus, right? So Mary's immaculate conception is one way that the church has tried to to kind of rationalize this. How do we keep this notion, this presupposition of original sin, while also explaining the the systematic of how Jesus uh, came into the earth without any sin? Um, no, when you say immaculate conception of Mary, you're saying the fact that she was born sinless, right? Mm-hmm. So the Catholics, in order to get around it, were like, well, crap. Yeah, Jesus would have to inherit her, his mother's sinful nature and her guilt, even though the man wasn't involved in concupiscence. So they were like going the extra step because like, they thought concupiscence. Like, oh, well, well what if he got it from her? Well, instead, God blessed her with special grace, and she was born without sin entirely. Exactly. Yeah, because we know. It's silly. If Jesus is of the line of Adam and Eve and of David, then so <laughs> Mary is also in the same Hebrew line that somehow tracks all the way back to Genesis 3 and original sin. Um, so yeah, exactly. Immaculate conception would be Mary was born 
without sin. So this is the special singular act of grace that shielded her from sin at birth. But it couldn't just stay there, right? Because it had to last throughout her lifetime in order for her to give birth to Jesus. Otherwise, the same stinking thing that happened to Eve is going to happen to her, and then you're, that, now we're in trouble is again. Is you get the perpetual virginity of Mary? Yes, that is where that comes from as well. Right? This is just like notions upon notions trying to so like you're poking holes in your own ship and then you plug them with like cork yeah like you're like uh, i i made that hole in the ship but i gotta put something else in there now because oops as opposed to maybe your just underlying presupposition is wrong but the catholic church can't admit that because they believe that god's grace guides the church into all perfect truth and that you know hence the papal infallibility and the, the yep. whole thing so that it's it gets really silly so born sinless kept sinless so she has to avoid any personal sins otherwise so she'd have to be spared judgment from this in some way. Um, but this really brings an interesting question. If God can do this for Mary, then really what is the point? What is the? Why couldn't he do this with Noah? Um, just like, okay, well, all the kids after this, now that we wiped all the evil off the, the earth, now we can just start with, let's just do the Immaculate Conception thing then and then be good. Actually, that's a really good point, right? Like What's you the difference? Just Start it like right off the bat when it happened. Like, okay, cool, immaculate conception of somebody. Now you give birth to a perfect person. Whew. All right, reset button. You know, but that's not what you see happening at all because it's nonsense. Yeah, and they would use this, there's one term they would use called uh, preservative redemption, which essentially that this granted Mary this ability to keep her sinless, and she was made sinless through the the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So, future Jesus before he's born, his sacrifice retroactively keeps Mary sinless until she gives birth to Jesus. Um, so th here's a quote from a Catholic w website that kind of tries to articulate this as Mary was redeemed at the moment of her conception through sanctifying grace by an application of Jesus merits on Calvary. So if, if this feels like we're just like conspiracy theory right on the board, it should feel like that because it's, it's a lot of mental gymnastics just to try to keep this original sin idea. Um, and obviously there's other ways that people try to rationalize this, but this is the way Catholics decided to dive into this topic. Um, but exactly, if God can do this for Mary, then why can't he do it for everyone? Why, why did he have to wait to the very last minute? Like, is God not powerful enough to maintain this, this, uh, this preventative redemption for everybody? Um, so this create these weird, like, rules, and none of these rules are from Scripture at all. This is just thought process and... Uh, conception of ideas based on this preposition that we have. Um, Eastern Orthodox Church, as we'll mention before, never adopted any of this. The Old Catholic Church didn't. There's, um, and honestly, a lot of Protestants didn't accept this version of trying to how the mechanism by which to exclude Jesus from this original sin. Well, there's other Protestants that didn't accept the original sin at all, like the Anabaptists. Yeah, there were so. some of that too. But yeah, there's definitely so there's definitely some disagreement here even in the church. So this isn't the only way, and now we all believe in original sin, this is how it had to be. But there's a lot of rationalization trying to figure out how Jesus could stay sinful or stay not sinful, yeah, whoa, born her sinless. Heresy? And now I actually am a heretic, so <laughs> cancel. Um so so anyway, um so we see that essentially what happens with Mary is that she gets elevated to a godlike status, right? Mm -hmm. And to get around the idea of original sin, right? So that it gets really kind of silly. So, which leads us to what do non-Catholic original sin believing churches do with Jesus being born sinless? Well, their answer is simply the virgin conception. 
They go, well, Adam, there was no man involved. There's no Adam. There's no man. So virgin conception. Yeah, that helps somehow God. excluded that even though half the genetic material is Mary. <laughs> Which is funny because actually that still doesn't make sense because, again, nowhere in Scripture does it say that's why he was born of a virgin. Nope. Nowhere in Scripture. That is straight up tradition, but it's not even like super early church tradition stuff. Like it gets really silly. Some argue that Jesus was spared original sin because it is the act of sex that transmits original sin. So now can you see where, uh, of course, some of the church's sex paranoia comes from, by the way? <laughs> Are you seeing where this purity culture weirdness came from, this hyper-like sensitivity towards sin? Well, if you think sin is continually a thing that's transferring, you're getting really weird about it. This is how all the sin keeps coming through, original sin. So where is this also in the Bible? It's not. Um, so, But if Mary still has original sin... She can pass it on genetically to Jesus, even if she conceived, she's conceived as a virgin. She's still born sinful. So, which is what, which is exactly what caused the Catholics to say that she had to be given a special grace. So, what about her sins that she committed before giving birth? Aren't we still in the same boat as Eve? Like, right? Isn't she right? Yeah, she's still in the same boat. So, if God, difference. <laughs> so if God can create sinless humans. Why not just do that through Noah and his wife at the time of the flood, like, as you mentioned before? God seems to know the problem before Genesis 6 will continue even post-flood, right? Because he says, and then later on in 821, uh, oh, this is actually really, that, yeah. So, and, and we'll readdress this in a minute, but this is a good point just for this. <laughs> and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, to, it said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So we're still left with what is the point of the incarnation of Christ? Because God already admitted, like, hey, this is going to keep happening, right? So why didn't he just do it then? So why are we left then? So what we're left with is, what is the point of the incarnation? Well, Scripture never says the virgin birth was a way to spare Jesus of original sin. The idea didn't exist with the apostles either. Neither does the immaculate conception. So what do we know, Brian? What do we know? Well, we have that Adam eventually leads to Abraham, which leads to David, which leads to Mary, which leads to Jesus. How much of a man was Jesus? He was fully man. Fully. In fact, that was one of the biggest fights with the early church. Uh, Recently, you and I got in some serious heat, especially (laughs) me, because uh, we dared say that someone who was a Unitarian could possibly be saved. What's funny about that was when we said that they could be saved. We never even said that they, they should be like considered an orthodox. They should never be considered part of the inner circle. They should never mm-hmm. be given church leadership. No, we just said that they could not. They could be spared hell. It's possible that people can still put their trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ without fully understanding His divinity and human nature and all the mechanisms that we've developed over two thousand years. Right. Of or some, uh, and what's funny is that even different people have different ideas of the Trinity. So, like, yeah. what level? What level of Trinity knowledge uh, grants salvation? Right. But let me. So we might go. What, what's the point of this talk? Will well, hear me out because what the big fight was in the early church was whether or not Jesus was a man. Mm-hmm. That's why there's Gnostics. Gnostics believe that that all things flesh were evil. All things physical were evil. Does this sound familiar, by the way? <laughs> so if it's of the flesh, it's evil. Therefore, God could not have become, could not have incarnated into Jesus and be made of actual flesh because all things physical are evil. Yeah. So therefore, Jesus must have just taken on the form of man, but really a spiritual uh, spirit being. Um, so it's really like an illusion kind of idea. So if you get to the idea of Gnosticism, uh, there's a reason why the Bible emphasizes continually 
Like it really emphasizes that he had to be flesh. Mm -hmm. He was a man. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, Brian, do you want to read that real quick? Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is Jesus. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So remember, from Augustine, the claim was that original sin corrupts flesh, soul, will, and intellect. So if Jesus was like us in every way, he must be corrupted by sin too. Otherwise, he really wasn't like us at all. Yeah, he's like us in no ways. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's running around in a video game on God mode. And then be like, nah, I played the game legit. Nah, I played legit. And you're like, no, you didn't. You, had, you typed in God mode. I understand how hard it was. Like, I just ran through everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that back in the day, by the way? Like, bringing down the the menu and then like type it in God mode and like do it. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I love the cheat codes. They should bring <laughs> cheat codes back. They made games fun. I still remember my hands. Remember the cheat code even from SimCity Cause I typed it so many times. Give me more money. <laughs> oh, I forgot to give me more money one. Yes. That's hilarious. I think I, it was, I'm a cheat was in, I think the original SimCity. Yeah. Well, there's another one that was like that, but for Starcraft and I was a huge Starcraft nut <laughs> and I love to make my base as big as possible. I didn't really care about winning. I just wanted to make a really cool, gigantic base and then go just like wreak havoc on everything. So, anyway, yeah. did you ever play StarCraft? Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. I have StarCraft at home. You do? I still we have. We should I have play. The floppy disks. Do- nice. Because the original <laughs> StarCraft is hands down one of the best RTS games of all time. Yeah, it's really good. All right. Anyway, back to theology. So, remember, uh, as we were saying, so either Jesus will like us in every way. Therefore, he must have understood our fully corrupted nature and been fully corrupted himself. Or <laughs> we can just go with the obvious. He is like us in every way, and he was just able to avoid it because he is God and righteous, and he never sins despite temptations and died even though there was no death penalty for him, for he had not sinned. And that made him the perfect sacrifice, and he was able to rule over weak flesh, resurrect from the dead, destroying sin and death, and Satan's claim to the kingdoms. Yeah. So... It makes a lot more sense that way. It's a, it's a way more straightforward narrative. It really is. Like, if you just read the Bible's narrative, you're like, oh, yeah. Interesting. Like, I'm reading Leviticus right now, so I'm doing this thing that I got this idea from Callie's mom. Great idea for you parents out there. It's a great idea. It's not mine, though. I wish I could take full credit, <laughs> but it's not. So what she did with every single one of her children, now my wife is one of 14, okay, keep this in mind. She'd buy a Bible, and she'd read through it front to cover, and she would make notes throughout it for her children. Yeah, that's awesome. And it was really cool. She only got to Cali, though, sadly, before she got sick and passed. Um, so it didn't ha- go through it many kids. But I, bought, I was like, that's an amazing idea. So I'm working through it with, Ke- with Eliana's Bible, which is mm-hmm. great because it's a great Bible reading thing for me, too. She's going to have so many notes to read. <laughs> yeah, I actually, dude, I'm in Leviticus right now, and I've been doing this for like six months. <laughs> um, because I'm just like writing and writing and writing continually. But what's amazing is how I look at Leviticus and I'm already seeing so many like Christological foreshadowings. 
and just the sacrificial system and how they treat their neighbors and all this stuff. Yeah. And if you understand it, guys, there's a narrative there. Like, that's the thing. I'm reading this. I'm already seeing the narrative coming undone. You don't need to start playing mental... You have to start asking yourself, once you start to play in a bunch of gymnastics with a doctrine, maybe the doctrine's wrong because you're, you're finding so many issues that I have to keep plugging holes in your ship, right? I don't think God's that complicated or his narrative is that under, difficult to understand, right? We're yeah. humans and basically it even the compliments children where children have to be able to understand this for crying out loud, right? And I think you're going to see as we go through this with some of the other different ideas, we're going to get into kind of the impact of desire specifically, how we deal with children, the innocence. You're going to see the kind of the explanations, the rationalizations that people come to. They're going to kind of revert back to our perspective, but they're going to put a lot of exceptions on it. Well, okay, they're innocent in this specific scenario. And or in this way, they're innocent. Right. Not this Mary way. was innocent specifically because of the special grace that she got. Babies are innocent because of this specific thing that they get this specific special grace. What if it's not just a whole bunch of little like sprinkling of special grace? Like God's like, okay, special grace for you, not for you. Special grace for you. What if it's just that we're born innocent and that sin corrupts and causes or flesh corrupts and causes a sin? What if it is just that simple the way James puts it? Well, let's find out. So. Uh, as I already mentioned, Yetzer, which is Hebrew for God-given drives, ambitions, or an appetite, a form, a framing, and a purpose. Um, in fact, actually, Jews believe that there's like a human soul and an animal soul within us, which is where our animalistic and evil desires come from. Lizard is, brain? Well, yeah, <laughs> which is why we're like made of flesh and like animals are made of flesh. But then we have the, a divine soul, which is why we act with good altruism and stuff. Now, I don't know if that's all true, but I'm just letting you know what Hebrews believe. Um, but we know we have good and bad desires. That is a fact of nature. I've known unbelievers who have good and evil desires. I've known unbelievers who do increasingly charitable acts. Like, completely selfless acts. They're good, what we would say, a good person as far as how they respond in social environments and whatnot. Honestly, this is a chink in the armor of Christianity when we say that unbelievers can only do evil. because Or only desire evil or only understand evil. They can never desire to do because good. Because people are rational. They can see that that's not true. Well, that's they can the thing, see like, altruistic atheists giving of their heart, giving of their money, giving of their time for people selflessly. Well, they see it. Consider for a second, if you're witnessing to somebody, and you're like, well, the thing is that when Adam, and, and they're like, well why, well, why do I need a savior? And you start explaining sin. And then you get to the point, well, Adam, you know, he sins, so we inherit the guilt. And they're like, well, how, well, I didn't do that. Well, why? And they're like, well, you know, we can't even desire to do good without God. And they'd go, are you kidding me? I desire to be good all the time. Like, I, I'm, I, like, I know atheists who have been recovered alcoholics because they didn't want to fall into the sin of alcoholism anymore. Mm -hmm. and they How selfish. Want to, they, didn't want to destroy, they didn't want to destroy their families anymore. They don't want to go, how selfish. Um, but then, you're, but then what, we're doing, what we're doing essentially is we're gaslighting them, right? Yeah. Like we're saying like, no, no, that light's not on. No, that gaslight's not on. No, it's not on. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Okay, well, Christianity must be full of crap because that's not true. The gospel is most effective when you when you give it in its truest form, and I think every time that you water it down with these with these bad concepts and and corruptions of the church, it actually hurts your witness, it hurts your testimony, and you give a partially false gospel, and it it loses its potency. Right, that's my opinion. I agree with you. So God gave Adam and Eve sex drive and the command to be fruitful and multiply. Right, so we have good and bad desires. But this is the means of the way that life is perpetuated and how families grow. So you can't sit there and say all sex is bad, right? We have good and evil desires. But it was funny because 
a sexual desires within a marriage is good. Mm -hmm. But if you are acting on sexual relations outside of marriage is bad or incestual, you know, if you're doing committing it incestually or, you know, pedophilia or, you know, even homosexuality and all these other things, like these are all considered sins that are abhorrent to God because they're, you're acting out on an, on an evil desire of sex, sexual, sexual desires aren't bad, mm -hmm. but just how you act out on them can be and your desires for it. So again, Yetzer, a desire is neutral, right? But uh, Yetzer Hatov being a good desire is good, and a Yetzer Hara being a good, bad is, of course, a bad desire. So as men and women, we must constantly attempt to rule over ourselves and keep our ambitions good and pure lest we fall into sin and miss the mark, right? And now before you think we make up all this stuff, we're going to lay out a biblical case on how the, we know that the Yetzer is in Scripture, what we're discussing. It's almost like the Jews have had this for 6,000 years. I know what they're talking about, right? So yeah, The reason I, why I wrote rule over specifically. Go ahead. <laughs> so Genesis 4, 6 through 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, is God telling him to do something that he cannot do? If so, that's pretty unrighteous, right? Like, like it's like telling your crippled kid to jump, do jumping jacks. Like, huh, jump. Well, I can't. Well, you're horrible, and yeah. now you're grounded for a week. Like, how, how can the evil desire be contrary to him who is born completely sinful and corrupt? Right, exactly. God didn't even understand original sin, apparently. Like, he didn't, okay, he didn't articulate that well. <laughs> that's a great point. Actually, it's really funny you mentioned that, because um, I never actually put that together. I never, I never considered that. Like, if he is born sinful... And the sinful desires and how is sin contrary to them? I say smart things every once in a while. Once in a while. <laughs> Just don't let your wife know. She, uh, she'll be like, fake news. That All was right. in the notes. That was completely off the cuff. Continue. So we have a potential for both good and evil. So again, and then we see in Genesis 8.21, this probably brings it, this actually tells us when sin occurs. So, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is after the flood, by the way, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, See, youth means birth, right? <laughs> so, wait, we're wait. are you telling me kids in youth group were just born? Yeah. They, sometimes they feel like that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say youth, so this is... Um, uh, the, the word like naur, which actually means, uh, is actually the same word that's used to describe young women, young men, and even prostitutes. It's discussing, it's talking about young people, not babies, not mm -hmm. from birth. It's talking about young people. So from the days of their youth. And guys, that's not controversial. That's actually, we see that in reality. Think about it. You have little children. They're cute and innocent. They do wrong things, but they don't fully understand they're wrong. They test their boundaries a little bit, but they're still pretty innocent. Like, they don't have a full grasp of their sin, which is why we call it innocence. We're not saying that what they do is not good or bad, but it's innocently done, right? Like, yeah. a child can act out innocently and not really realize the full consequence of what they have done. Um, an example of this is I was raised doing, we, our family did foster care. You already know this. Mm -hmm. we, we've we took in kids, and some of the kids um, were moved from house to house because they sexually abused other kids. But the kids would come into our home, and they wouldn't quite understand why everyone was so mad at them. <laughs> and even though we're like, don't you get what you've done? No. He's seven. He was sexually abused when he was three for years, and then he just mirrored that, mm -hmm. right? 
innocently. Like it's not like he, it's not. We're not saying it's not good or bad, right? We're, no, it's definitely bad. Yeah. But you don't have a full understanding. Yeah, of they're what missing that did. knowledge of good and evil that kind of drives some of that. Right. Really, they're, the responsibility. Their framework their is still are. being developed because they're because of their innocence, and that is one of those moments where you're able to work them through why it's bad mm-hmm. but now look you had an evil desire there but it was it, was, it could have been done in innocence you may have been you may have been conscien- conscientious of it because some kids are right mm-hmm. uh, kids develop in different stages at different parts of life some definitely. kids some kids are like really they definitely know what they're doing at like five some kids they're very sweet and innocent for a lot longer than that mm-hmm. this really depends but development developmental this is actually gets into the uh whole bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah the whole thing with um you know, when you're when a boy was 13, he was considered a son of the commandments. When a girl was 12, she was considered a daughter of the commandments in Judaism. And basically, it's after this point they're like, now you're accountable for your sin mm-hmm. because we don't know exactly when that took place with you, but we definitely know by now you know better. Yep. So, hence by the days of their youth. And notice this by the days of their youth. So they're actually giving from. I should say this: a man's heart is evil from his youth. So it's actually giving you a point of reference. Right, it's from his what his youth, not his birth. Yeah, so that's important. It's excluded specifically what original sin is saying. It starts because think of how silly that is too. Like, I my, my daughter was born two months early, uh, like a year and a half ago, and when I held her, that wasn't this evil, filthy, rotten sinner corrupted through and through in every single layer of her being. No. Like, she didn't even know what anything was. She just knew I want to sleep and I'm hungry. If and you I hold like a baby and think that shame on you. I. I like, what reality are you living in? Well, if you're a, a freaking Vodi Bakum, who actually I, I, I like um, in many ways, but he calls babies vipers in a diaper. He literally says that he believes that the reason why God made them so small so they wouldn't kill you and why God made them so cute so you wouldn't kill them. Yeah. Because apparently we won't kill babies unless they're cute. Unless they're not cute. Unless they're not cute. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. But you get the idea. It was like, that, this is really, that's a really screwed up doctrine. We're like, oh, life is sacred. Oh, don't kill the babies. Don't abort them. Um, but man, that's a viper in a diaper. It's evil. And, you know, man, the only reason why it's cute is so you don't kill it. Because if it wasn't cute, you'd yeah. kill that baby. Don't kill it. It's so innocent. But if it does die, it actually going to hell. So it's just so, no, they're innocent. Um, they're, there's an innocence there. And that's, an innocence is good. And Jesus talks about that innocence. And we're going to talk about that here soon. So, Greek, by the way, so again, if uh, intention or desire is the yetzer, then in Greek, the euthymu, yeah, wow, epithumia, which is also the idea of longing, desires, or eagerness. This is like really far away from me. It's like really small. I should zoom in. <laughs> can I zoom, zoom in? in? Okay, I can zoom in. I'm over here like. <laughs> and we so. see that word used in Luke 22. Jesus says it specifically. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. Was That was an evil desire, right? We already know spotless lamb, free from blemish. So not all not, desire is evil, right? Yeah. So Augustine's wrong. He's wrong. It's not all concupiscence. He read that verse wrong. So desires cannot be fully evil from Adam through original sin. Otherwise, Jesus had evil desires, and we just proved that Jesus did not sin, nor had no sin had sin in him. So if desire in the Bible can be both good and evil, that helps us actually understand where Augustine went wrong. He couldn't read Hebrew or Greek, so that's something to understand. There's a language barrier here. And also a cultural barrier, because he wasn't Jewish. So he didn't understand these Jewish terms and the Jewish theology behind them. So he couldn't read Hebrew and Greek. He could only read Latin. So he relied on the Latin and therefore came with it with this 
idea that Latin translated the yetzer and the epithumia as concupiscence. And therefore, he was like, it must all be bad. Which you can actually see where he came to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So all that the, the God-given desires, longings, took, in, took on a sinister perspective through this translated word and altered Augustine's understanding of human desire. So his conclusion, as we stated this last week, um, basically that original sin is concupiscence, a base and sexual desire. And sin was really a sexual transmitted condition. As such, all men are born with their will, mind, and body corrupt, and thus deserving of God's wrath. That was what he taught. Now let's talk about our pet topics. This Roe v. Wade was recently overturned. Um, let's talk about abortion and how it relates to children and original sin. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why Christians are so anti-abortion in many ways is because we truly know in our hearts that those are innocent children that do not deserve death. They do not deserve to be killed indiscriminately, they deserve life. And if you come to the conclusion that from their conception, they have inherited Adam's sin guilt, that they are born deserving of wrath, they're born deserving of hell, you cannot say that statement that they are innocent. In, and you can also really, truly, I don't think that you can actually, if you hold the original sin, that you can say that aborted babies go to heaven and not damned to hell. Like, that, those two things are logically inconsistent. Either original sin is true and aborted babies, because they're guilty, go to hell, or they're innocent and therefore original sin is not true. Right. It's got to be one or the other. Like, trying to create multiple, otherwise you're creating, do, you are literally doing gymnastics. So the logic here is that man is created with Adam's sin and guilt. Without faith in Christ, all go to hell. Well, our life begins at conception, so we possess the sin and guilt the moment we exist. Therefore, babies or anyone, miscarried, aborted, SIDS, or anything like that, go to hell. Everyone deserves hell, then, from this point of existence, right? From this very point of existence, everyone deserves it. Too bad. We are all born, we are all in Adam, you know, and deserving of hell. So the early church tried to reconcile the understanding of ba that babies were innocent, yet keep original sin. This happened after Augustine, obviously. Their conclusion was... <laughs> I got more loopholes. Limbo of infants in the 1300s, which lasted until recently and was changed to a special grace that was similar to Protestants' current belief. Yeah, and I think... Shout out to Warren again. I think he goes through this a lot more in detail in his Original Sin series. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, this limbo of infants is kind of like this made-up thing that really, as, as Warren describes, becomes this untenable position that the Pope in, like, I think it was like 2003, is like, okay, this is actually not right at all. Like, right. no one even believes this. So the Catholic Church did a, kind of did a monumental thing and changed their belief system. They retconned? They did. <laughs> they were like, mm, the last 700 years were kind of wrong, um, but we're going to keep the original sin. <laughs> Can't get rid of that, but we'll just say it's a special grace, which is what... A lot of the, the Protestants from the Reformation. You know, you gave a shout-out to Warren real quick. Let's check out the... Just check it out right here. We're going to put the playlist in the description below. He's part of Black Sheep Theology. Let's promote him a little bit. Um, how many also have held a newborn infant? If you've ever held a newborn infant, does that look like a being deserving of damnation? A sinner that if they died there in the hospital would have no place to go but hell or require a special saving work by Jesus? And where in, is any of that in the Bible? 
that you can't even live with most people. I will say most people can't even live with their own logical conclusion from adherence to original sense. They go, well, no, 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 no. Like, they can't be going to hell. There's got to be something good. That doesn't make any sense. You're, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. But what you're clinging to, you're, you're creating some other new doctrine that is the conclusion of which is just what we're already saying. Mm-hmm. Instead of creating this new special category of grace, like we were saying, just say, well, they're born innocent. And you don't have this mental gymnastics to try to get back to what we're already saying, what you're already experiencing when you hold that innocent baby in your hands. And people, before someone goes, well, you're just making an emotional argument. I say this all the time as well. If your doctrine has to deny the very epistemic reality that you're grasping in front of you, you have a bad doctrine. Doctrine Mm -hmm. reflects reality. So if you're like, well, I feel everything about it. Yeah, you're right. I, what I observe is that it's innocent and cute and wonderful and sweet and a gift of God. And what I what I feel is that way as well. But you know what? I have to go by what God's word says. You know, so therefore, uh, I cannot trust any of my senses or epistemic reality. I have to go by what God's word says, which I agree with. I have to go by what God's word says. But what God's word says never contradicts reality. Mm -hmm. So if that is such a visceral difference in reality, perhaps your doctrine is wrong and you can just accept the fact that children are born innocent. Yeah, That's a wonderful thing. And it is actually a gift from God, just like the Bible says. You essentially just described gaslighting yourself to maintain a systematic theology about sin. Say there's some other ideas besides just this special grace. So mm-hmm. John Kelvin, what did he think about this? So, to, well, first off, to say we, we can't have such an observation is to state that we have no epistemic certainty, which is the study of knowledge, right? So we cannot trust our minds or senses at all. So if that is the case, then how can we trust our belief in anything, including God? So if you say that what you, what you feel and believe in the moment when you're holding a baby, you have no epistemic certainty then. It becomes a living nightmare. Yeah, even general revelation essentially can't exist because that would be using reality to influence your understanding well, What about of God? those feelings you have when you open up God's word and you feel like his word influencing you? You can't trust that because how crazy. do I know that's not feelings-based? Yeah, you're just right. crazy. Right, so, I mean, it, there has to be epistemic certainty. Um, so anyway, John Calvin believed infants who die could be part of the elect and saved by God in some other way, but not done for all infants. Luther said, quote, all infants who die are saved through the merit of faith possessed by their parents. That's also not in the Bible. <laughs> right. Luther also said, in baptism, infants received saving faith. That's what my church believed. <laughs> what? Like, all, all this is just a pure, just moronic stupidity at this point. Like, I, 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 like it's just one of those things where, like, are you, do you hear yourself? And, like, I'm not saying if you believed original sin, you're stupid. I believed original sin for most of my life. Mm-hmm. And then, but I always had a hard time squaring this circle. And you probably, if you're listening to this, you're probably going, same here. I've been struggling with this for so long. Yeah. It's because it's nonsense. So trust that. When those, like, little weird red flags are going off, that's definitely something to investigate, yeah. right? And be willing to accept the fact that you might be wrong on. And if you agree with us, this is not an excuse to be militant to everyone who doesn't understand it. Um, or has a different opinion on this, that's perfectly fine. This is not a church-splitting topic. This is something that you should be able to talk about openly. I talked about, I taught this at a church that very much believes in original sin, and we had a really great couple weeks Sunday school on this and kind of talked through where the ramifications are, and I got a lot of people like, oh, I didn't really think about this. Yes, because a lot of times we don't think about the logical conclusions of what we believe. 
we like to be like, oh, I'm good. I accepted that belief, and we don't think about it any further. That's a normal understanding mechanism that people do. Well, we like our, our pastors to challenge pick, yourself. We like our pastors to pick up a systematic theology book and teach it to us in bullet points and go, that sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody does, if you are finding our arguments convincing or you are now getting to the point where you deny Augustinian original sin, don't become like this militant jerk about it. Um, because a lot of people are just believing what they've always been taught. So just take time to listen. As much as I think this doctrine is stupid and creates a lot of problems, um, I'm saying this because I thought, I think I was stupid at the time when I affirmed it. I think I was just trying to avoid the conclusion of, like, because I kept avoiding it because I, I was like, oh, I don't like that. Of course God saves children. I'm like, well, what verse is that? I'm like, uh, suffer the little children to come unto me. They're like, that's not talking about birth. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone. Just um, try to keep the consistent terminology even as you're describing mm-hmm. something. If you can't describe an aborted baby as innocent, or you do, but then but then turn around and say that baby was born deserving of wrath, or if it was born was deserving of wrath, then or you, born you have, sinful. You have an you have an inconsistent perspective on it you're not using the same term and also don't do that thing where people think that a baby crying is somehow a sin has no language it's like it's literally the way it communicates like yeah. my baby cries I'm like oh like when she was first born she cried i knew it was probably a couple of things she needed snuggles food or a diaper change generally food mm-hmm. that's what she cared about or she just wanted out of her crib anyway plus is every time an adult cries sinful i mean come on right exactly like uh, yeah. Every time you go to McDonald's, you're being sinful, huh? Maybe. Jesus maybe wept. <laughs> Jesus wept. All right. Infant baptism origin as well, which is uh, pedo-baptism. So Catholic beliefs, what belief was that we had to wash away original sin through baptism to allow the possibility for regeneration. Um, and you said your church growing up believed uh, in a form of that, right? Yeah, really short story with Brian. So my wife, when we were first dating, uh, we kind of went to each other's churches. We had pretty different belief systems at the time. Um, she was Baptist and I was Calvinist and, uh, and she was not Reformed Baptist. And she came to my church one time and they were doing an infant baptism. She goes, oh, never seen this before. And uh, she was paying attention to what we were actually saying. Like the pastor says some stuff to the parents, they repeat it, and then the church uh, answers a question. Um, and she's like, did you hear what they just said? And I was like, yeah, I was listening. She goes, what did they just say? I was like, I wasn't listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this is early college Brian. Early college Brian paid attention to very little things. Um, anyway, she goes, they just said that they baptized that baby into the church and that the parents were promising to raise them up, assuming that they were part of the elect and part of God's kingdom. And she goes, that's not right. And I was like, whoa, they didn't say that before. <laughs> Yes, they did. Uh, yes, they I swear did. they never said that before, <laughs> honey. They've been saying it for 20 years. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. I haven't even had this conversation. Honestly, it was on RFP fam last year. Oh, I made this comment like, no Calvinist churches believe that. You are full of it. I was like, look, this is a really interesting time in dating my wife where we had a long discussion about it. Now, you're right. I wasn't paying attention. Maybe she was just completely lying and gaslighting me. Maybe that's the case. But I paid attention to it later when I saw it again. Well, my favorite part <laughs> is just the fact that um, people who were not raised in the Christian Reformed Church, like you were, sit there and try to speak authoritatively about Christian Reformed <laughs> doctrines. It's always my favorite part where you're like, I was literally raised in it, bro. Like, I know what they believe. Yeah. Um, so... So anyway, uh, if we think that the guilty deserve God's wrath and we are born guilty and more sinful creatures damned to hell are created every time a new baby is conceived, how can any Christian be against abortion? That would be actually the killing of 
So that's killing of the damned, right? Who hate God, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite of all good. So you would have to affirm that abortion is a good thing. Um, or no, at least she just not. quoted the Westminster Confession when you said that, by the way. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, so no, uh, nor, uh, no Christians should be for bringing new life into the world then at all, if that's what, what it creates. Um, in fact, John, uh, John MacArthur said that there is basically no greater sin or there's no evidence of, God's na- of a man's nature, as I say. There's no more evidence of man's nature than the procreative act because everything that the mankind's loins produce is sin. Hmm. So that's a rough quote, but it's pretty close. So um, anyway, you get the idea. So now let's go ahead and move forward to Genesis chapter 6, 5. Uh, where it says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We went through this in depth in our Genesis series, but this is considered a proof text for original sin. But who is it speaking of? It is speaking of the people during that time. Was it evil continually? Was was Noah included in all those people? <laughs> like, was it was it evil, so evil continually that when they slept it was evil thoughts, that when the mom breastfed her child it was evil? No, if you read, like, you get the idea of evil reigned so much more than anything else, right? So who is it speaking of? Well, and, and if you go into verses 1 through 2, it is those who were the sons of God that took the daughters of man and they, that they took them for their wives of any that they chose, right? And we see this again uh, with Matthew 24, 37 through 39, where it says, For it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So we see here that these were not, what he's talking of here that's evil continually is not all of mankind through the generations. It was this particular group of people. So this is just addressing the overall condition of these adults, not necessarily a universal description of all people for all time. Uh, Genesis 6, 8 through 9 then says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Oh! He wasn't evil continually? (laughs) So it's not everybody. Okay, okay, cool. So how can Noah be blameless and be corrupted by original sin? You tell me. Genesis 6, 12 through 14, and he says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. For what? All flesh had corrupted their way, so they became something. Yeah, corrupted means it wasn't corrupt, and then it became it be, corrupted. Yeah, it's, it's saying that this is, a, like, this is a state that took place, if right? If I look at your sailboat and say it has become corroded, I'm not assuming that when you bought that boat brand new from the factory that it was full of corrosion. Right. I assume that... The, the sea air corroded your boat. Right. So I've deter- he says, it goes on to say, I've determined to make an end of all the flesh from the earth with violence through them because I will destroy them with the earth and make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So I'm doing this to them, but not to you because you are not one of them because you are righteous. They have chosen evil. They have become corrupted. They are corrupted now. So if they are corrupted because of original sin, then, at, then Noah should be corrupted because of original sin. Yeah. But he's not. We see that they chose different paths. Yeah, there's a distinction God's making here. So the flesh has corrupted them, uh, which is evil desires. They were not created corrupt, but they became corrupt. The earth was filled with violence through them. They caused the violence, not that they were born that way. And the distinction between Noah and them it was that Noah's being uh, was a being of flesh, but he was righteous and chose to be faithful to God. 
So let's talk about Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the wound. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Aha. See? Well, original sin's true. <laughs> All right, Will, you're stupid. But here's the thing. Actually, you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, you so ahead. it's actually stating a subset, right? The wicked is a subset of mankind. Not all mankind go astray to the state where they are created in. So go astray means that they weren't already astray in sin and speaking lies. So they go astray. And this is just this is essentially speaking hyperbolically. This is Psalms, right? So we're this is not a proof text. If you're trying to draw a hard line doctrine, you have to keep a pl- a going to a poetic book, you know you're in trouble. Um, so, but right here, it says right there, like they go astray, right? I mean, it says it right there. They go astray from birth. The wicked do. Well, then he talks about in the same Psalm, if you look through it and you look around it, he talks also about the righteous. Mm-hmm. There's the righteous and the wicked. He's creating parallelisms. Okay. Literally in the same chapter. Exactly. <laughs> Psalm 22, nine through 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Uh oh. But whoa, 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 whoa! But I thought the wicked went astray from birth. Yeah. And but so he's saying right here, things good things from his mother's womb. Yeah. And this is specifically talking about David, right? And there's another proof text we're going to read in just a minute where people's like, "See, see, David was specifically born in sin." We have a now we have a text against that that he said, "You have been my God since I was in the womb." Well, you're either a slave to Satan or you're a slave to God. So which is it? So which is it? (laughs) If original sin is true, then David could not. David would have been wicked from his womb, uh, from the womb, and from his birth. But it says right here that David was not wicked from birth. From the womb, God. From from the womb, God was his God. Right. Psalm fifty-eight, ten through eleven says the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will be, whoa, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there, there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the, on the earth. And so right here we see that parallelism between the righteous and the wicked, which are different because we all aren't equally wicked. Uh, Psalm 71, 5 through 6. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my, from my, before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. So the prodigal son, he says, he leaves his father, sins, and then returns. He was not sinful from the start. And here we have a, another example with Psalm 71 that I just read, that from the, his youth, which, by the way, would be the same term being used like from the days of the youth, their hearts are turned toward evil. Well, he says right here, oh, Lord, from my youth. So we clearly can't say that they're all equally evil from all these different points because yeah. otherwise this becomes increasingly incoherent. Or you start saying, well, those parts talking about sin are super literal from birth and we can stretch that to birth. But then all those parts where he's talking here, like from his youth about how God, how good God is, well, that's more hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. Well, how about maybe he's speaking a little bit hyperbolically about the nature of man, that some of us are righteous, some of us are wicked due to our own choice because of our corrupted nature, our corrupted moral fortitude, I should say. And maybe someone might say, okay, Will, Brian, okay, maybe babies aren't like wicked, but they still have some kind of guilt of Adam. (laughs) And then it's... This is one of my favorite texts to go to, Ezekiel 18.20. You want to read that? Yeah. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. 
The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ooh. Oof. Well, but, but, but my original sin, though. <laughs> sin, guilt, is not transferable from father to son or son to father. It literally states it. <laughs> right. A soul whose sin shall die. Not a soul born sinful then, right? The son shall not receive the punishment for the sins of his father and vice versa. So there again is a distinction between righteous and wicked. Righteous can sin and repent, but the perfect forgiveness is from Jesus' sacrifice. And this directly contradicts the idea that our first father's sins we suffer for. That's not what this is. This we we only the corruption of creation happened because sin corrupted it. The ground was corrupted, right? The ground was cur- the ground was cursed. And now we live in a fallen creation, and it says that Satan is the prince of powers of the air, right? He owned the kingdoms of the world, which is why uh, he tempted Jesus with them before his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, not to get my atonement spiel, but just <laughs> these all are interconnected, you can tell. So, but then we get to my favorite. This, this is actually my favorite verse that people bring up. They're like, well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. So, babies, they're all, right? All is all, all is all, all means, unless, of course, I'm a Calvinist, and it says God desires that all should be saved and all should come to repentance, and all doesn't mean all then. <laughs> but but now, right here, all really means all when all has sins. All ha- all I have, am being so pedantic, I apologize. Pedantic. It was also kind of funny, though. All have done what, though? Have done what? They have sinned. Not they, we're born sinful, not we're born corrupted, not we're born wicked. All, all have committed have sin. Sinned. Right. They have done something. Right. That's I, why they're held responsible, because they have sinned. If I say, if all have ran, does that mean all people who have been born have ran? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Does it mean they're running from the birth? Well, some mothers might have felt like that was happening inside them. but <laughs> Right. Exactly. So um, that is that. That doesn't make sense. So for all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. Anyway, all have what? They've sinned. Also, let's talk about the context in that passage. Yeah. People quote that all the time. But what is Romans? Romans is a letter to Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And it's really discussing the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's mm-hmm. really the, the topic of the entire book. So many people make it a soteriology book. It's not exclusively a soteriology book. It's really talking about how Jews and Gentiles relate to one another. Yeah, and Paul's kind of putting it in context and putting them in their place, the Jews who think that they get to go to heaven because they kept the law. Right, or that they're born Jewish. Mm -hmm. But the context here is he is talking about the contrast between Jew and Gentile. He's telling Jews that they aren't special because all have actually sinned. That Jews have sinned, and so have Gentiles sinned. Not that everyone is born sinful. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, whoa, Jews, you've sinned, and Gentiles have sinned. All have sinned. He's talking about people groups, and we go, from birth? Like, we're, we're jumping the gun. Like, if I was sitting there saying, like, all, like, if I was talking to a football team and I was like, look, all the offense and the defense have to play with the football, you wouldn't be like, all people have to play with the football, even in the stadiums, even those from birth, right? <laughs> like, no, I'm talking to this group of people. Shut up. Stop stretching my all yeah. <laughs> to mean other things. There is a context of what he was saying. So not all were already sinners. This is an argument to prove even the Jews needed Messiah, because in Romans 1, he says that God gives the unrighteous up to their own wickedness. In Romans 2, he says Jews rely on the law to save them, but the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. 
and that God will judge them accordingly. And in Romans 3, it says, even though you are Jews, you have still sinned, and the only way to become fully righteous in God's eyes is through faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans 4, he says, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. See, this isn't a new concept, guys, because <laughs> Abraham was by faith, and same with you guys, not by birth, not by law. Now, my and other... And Romans 5. <laughs> this is, of course, what everyone was probably waiting for. This in Psalm, what, 95? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, you have to remember, Paul speaking in generalities and speaking to Jews and Gentiles about their relationship with each other, because this is Romans. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. Oh. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So if death reigned from Adam to Moses, well, what was the difference with, with Moses? Well, the law was given. The law is life. Um, that's what they would teach. So all have sinned. Now, hold on. So let's talk about this for two seconds. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So sin entered the world through one man because of the temptation with Satan, right? And this one sin corrupted physical creation. And death through sin. So death is a result of sin. Death is not a curse of God. It's a result of sin, mm -hmm. right? So it's like a natural consequence. Like if I put my hand on the stove, it's going to get burned. So it doesn't mean God, God cursed my hand to burn, right? <laughs> it's a natural consequence. It's a corrupting force. He says, but then death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned, right? So he's speaking in generalities here. Now you have to understand that he's making comparisons. Remember, he's comparing people groups. Jew and Gentile? Well, now he's about to ready to compare lifestyles. That's what Romans 5 is really about, patterns of life. Because then he goes on to say in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So one sin brings all, all condemnation, right? So that means like my one sin can condemn me. So following one trespass brought condemnation. One sin was enough. But the free gift following many trespasses, oh, not one, many, brought justification. So after all these different sins of mankind, we still have justification. Verse 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So, so far, Brian, who are the two people we're comparing here? Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. And Jesus is described as the second or the final Adam, right? Mm -hmm. So if Jesus describes the second and final Adam, he's discussing patterns of life here. If you say an Adam, it's death. One sin was all it took to corrupt creation and bring condemnation to mankind. Mm -hmm. But even after all the sin, justification is allowed through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we have the way of Adam and the way of Christ. Which one are you going to be in, right? Choose mm -hmm. the day whom you will serve, you could almost say. And then it gets even increasingly clear. Verse 18, therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Because, by the way, so now the law came to increase the trespass because now we're more aware of it. We see the law, so now it exposes our sin, right? So now we're more aware of it, therefore sin increased. Grace abounded, though, all the more, so that it, as, it, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, let's break this passage down a little bit, Brian. Yeah, this is the best paragraph. <laughs> yes. Sin came into the world through Adam. Death spread to all men because why? Because all sinned. Not because all were born sinners, because we all sin, right? Just like Romans 3 said. Right. That Jew and Gentile both sin. Death, which is separation between God and his creation, entered through Adam and was healed through the second Adam. Okay, we see that in here. They sinned in many ways, but it was, it was, the, but it was that they sinned, not that they were born condemned. So many died. But not all, right? Right? Not everyone died in Scripture. Like, nope. take a second for this. Like, well, all sinned, so all died. Well, not everyone died physically in Scripture. Enoch is a great example of that, <laughs> right? He didn't die physically. Well, did he sin? Well, yeah. Or was he born corrupted? <laughs> well, you you choose, all right? So many died. Yeah. So when it says that, well, death came onto all living things, well, then does that include Enoch? You're like, well, no, of course he's the exception. Well, then why is he the exception? Maybe, possibly, just maybe, that we've had it wrong a little bit. So physical death is, is the sign of sin. How do you deal with Enoch or Elijah, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have it both ways. And if you say death is only separation, again, I bring up Enoch. <laughs> Was he separated from God? The Jews believed Enoch to be sinless. How can they believe that if original sin was always the doctrine of the Jews and the Christians? <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not even saying Enoch was sinless. But I'm not saying the Jews believe this, right? Yeah. So at least wonder. you have to understand that we are trying to go back to what was a lot of the same belief structure and that this isn't a new idea. Mm -hmm. We're trying to go back to what was orth orthodoxy and try to go before Augustine corrupted the church with his own original sin. Right. So he, but then he, the pastor says many died. But not all, right? Mm -hmm. Right? So if physical death is the sign of sin, then again, how do you deal with Enoch? So now let's deal with this. He says even one trespass. So he goes, one trespass brings this, right? So even one trespass or sin brings condemnation, but justification resolves all someone's sins instantly, right? It resolves them. So one trespass leads to condemnation of all men. It didn't condemn all men. Right? So that's the difference. One trespass led to the condemnation of all men. It didn't condemn all men. And if you have to apply the reverse here, so then you have to ask yourself a question. Are all men justified? Now, I'm sorry if that was very confusing. I don't think I worded that very well. So let me just finish my thoughts here, and then I'm going to go back, and I'll try to make sure I clarify. One man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So then the other question is, many or all, right, from birth. Were they sinners from the start, or did they choose to sin? Again, apply the parallel. Does many of the many here mean everyone is made righteous as well? Right? Because you're like, well, many, many were sinners, well, and many died. Okay, well then it says when many were made righteous. If many means from birth, then many means from birth, including righteous, right? Okay, so verse 18, let's read the one sentence here because I think it makes a lot more sense. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So all original sin proponents are like, see, it's literally there. One trespass leads to sin for all men, but then comma, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Hard stop, 
you, I don't think there's many universalists that believe in original sin. You can't have it both ways. So if it, so if that means that it leads to for all men, if one sin leads to sin for all men, as in born with sin, then we have to say that Jesus' justification means life for all men, no exceptions. <laughs> Otherwise, what you're saying is that, well, all people are condemned from birth because they're born, all men means from birth. But when we say that justification to life for all men means only those who believe or only those whom God elected. So then what you're doing is you're creating an inconsistent hermeneutic within the exact same sentence and the exact same passage of what all men means in that passage. Really what he's saying is that all men sin because we do. Every single person sins. But all men also have access to Jesus because in the way of Adam is death, but in the way of Christ is life. That is all Romans 5 is getting at. And it's actually, the more you understand that, the more you read the Romans 5, you go, oh yeah, that parallel is very obvious. It's not, he's not saying you're born that way. He's saying, hey, look, Adam, sin entered into the world. Well, once sin entered the world, death came. Um, but Christ offers salvation to all because through one sin, all men, all men experience sin. Now through Jesus Christ, all men can experience salvation. Yeah, we have that leads to, right? It's the same kind of idea of Genesis 6 about the flesh was leading to the corruption and leading to their hearts being on sin continually. Same here. One sin from Adam gives us this knowledge of good and evil, these conflicting desires, which leads to condemnation of all who sin. Therefore, the righteousness and justification that Jesus offers on the cross leads to the ability to be saved from that, leads to justification, leads to righteousness. Right. So It makes sense. Right, exactly. So there is really, it does not teach here what people seem to think it teaches here. Now let's quickly jump into Psalm 51.5. It wasn't 95, it was Psalm 51.5. I always get the different, there's different, There's so many different songs that people bring up in this topic, I get them all mixed up in my brain. Yeah. So this is actually one of the funniest ones that people bring up, <laughs> because people are like, found it, got it! And it's so you're going to see some translation bias here, and you're also going to see what happens when we read this with a particular theological lens, what brings us to that uh, conclusion. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So, um, uh-oh, sin brought him forth. In sin, he started, right? Does that mean mm -hmm. he's, he started from that birth, Brian? That must be what it means, right? Uh, <laughs> there's no other possible way to no read other, that. There's no other way to read that. Actually, no. Uh, it says that David was conceived through sexual immorality, not that he was born sinful. Because, right? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. So he was brought forth. He was born in sin, but not born sinful. He was born in a sinful situation. Or you could say more he was conceived in it. More right. Than born he was more it. conceived in sin, right? And in sin, my mother, did my mother conceive me? So uh, if you get into this a little, actually, we'll talk about this as we go through. So despite the sin of his mother and father, he was still brought forth into the world. So if you get back into this, you, we know that David's family hated him. They did not like him because he it most likely he was viewed as, a, as scholars have pretty well agreed on this, most likely he was a, 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 a considered to be a product of adultery. So if that's the case, if they considered him to be a product of adultery, then behold, I was brought forth in iniquity because my mother committed adultery or my father committed adultery, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And what is David lamenting in this whole chapter? What the is he sad about? The <laughs> loss of his own child through his sin with Bathsheba. Oh, what an interesting parallel. So it's a parallelism. I was brought forth in adultery. Now she is brought forth. My, my, my child died who was brought forth in adultery. Woe unto me, I have repeated the pattern, right? Yeah. Um, Aren't we all 
sad when we repeat the sins of our parents. No, what instantly happens is that people go, whoa, 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 hold on. Are you saying that like Jesse and them, like they cons- they committed adultery? There are some stories on how this worked, but the uh, the long and short of it is it that Jesse was concerned that due to his Moabite like lineage, uh, that he might not be pure blood, essentially. Yeah, he might not have a pure lineage. So he was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Um, that means all my wife's children are actually illegitimate children because she's actually pure Jew, and anything from me being a non-pure Jew um, would be corrupt, and these children would not be legitimate heirs. But, however, Jewish law says that if I'm with a sojourner, somebody who is an outsider who becomes uh, one of us, and then they, those children would be considered legitimate. Basically, what it is, he overthought the process. So <laughs> then he was like, well... Um, I should take the maid woman and create uh, legitimate descendants and stop shaming my wife um, with giving illegitimate children. And the maid servant was like, holy cow, but I really love uh, love her, so I don't want to like do, do this with her husband because I feel like I'd be betraying her. So they say the, the story goes that Jesse, they got him drunk and that he went and laid with uh, his wife, actually not the maid servant, and she got pregnant with David during that time, but he like doesn't remember this. I don't know how in the Bible, by the way, in the Bible, like same thing with Rachel and Leah, like people tricked them into somebody else. <laughs> I'm like, do you guys really have no lights, like no candle, nothing? It was really? probably dark, so I could see maybe some of these problems occurring. But but I, I feel like it wasn't <laughs> really dark, man. But I think you would know. <laughs> I, I just I get the weird I feel like impression, you'd but tell. but I mean I guess if he was drunk enough, or maybe it was dark enough, I have no idea. But point is, is that somehow they tricked her into tricked him into having sex with his wife. She gets pregnant, but he doesn't recall that. And suddenly she's pregnant, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, she's pregnant!" But he's like, "I didn't have sex with her." And suddenly they consider him a product of adultery, even though she never committed adultery. But she never she never uh, said that that's what Jesse did because she wanted to honor her husband, not embarrass him with his basically midlife crisis. <laughs> you can actually look up the whole story. There's actually a few a few accounts of it. So, point is is uh, this is not referring to. Yeah, David. And even if you ignore all the commentaries and stuff that that Will was talking about, and go, okay, but what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible doesn't say that he was conceived as a sinful born human. It's talking about the conception was sinful, not him, and that he essentially caused pain (laughs) in childbirth. Or that behold, I was brought forth in iniquity could also mean I was born brought forth in a sinful world. I was brought forth in in a sinful situation. I was brought does not say I was born a sinner. In fact, we see translation biases happen here. If you read the NIV, it's probably the most egregious. The NIV says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. <laughs> Which completely actually flip-flops this entire meaning of the passage because literally the NASB. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. NKJV. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. ASV. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. <gasps> RSV, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And ESV, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother con- did my mother conceive me. Uh, oh. But you repeat yourself. <laughs> so essentially, if you just read like straight Hebrew, what is it saying? It says, behold, in transgression, I caused labor pains, and by a sinner, she wasn't he to conceive me, my mother. That's as kind of bare bones, direct translation to English as we can come up so with. So that's actually really important to understand because that part where it says, in sin, my mother conceived me. Um, conceived is actually like, it means in heat or like sexually horny, essentially. <laughs> like I'm not trying to be gross, but it means that she's like, let's go. Um, so uh, if that's the case, that's hardly something we'd expect from a baby to be born with. 
Yeah, this sounds like the, the, the sinful act is focused on the mother, not the child. Right. So then we get to Matthew 18, 3, and, sa- and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Become like what? Oh, little <laughs> children. Level Those... devils that you want to murder, I guess, because <laughs> they're so evil. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. It doesn't make sense. So is this another proof text that children are innocent? I believe so. What does it mean to become like a child? Well, Mark 10, 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Well, the thing is that they belong to the kingdom of God, right? Romans, and then Matthew 18, 6, he goes on. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Why is it bad to cause them to sin if they were already born corrupt, guilty, and were already sinners? What is the difference? There's nothing that changed here. Right. There's no shift. So it's better to be drowned in the sea than in the sea in the worst possible way than to actually cause a child to sin. How can we reconcile this with original sin? Well, probably because original sin is bunk. So is this adults uh, acting as Satan with Eve, providing the external influence maybe for sin? I think that's probably a better way, right? Children are innocent. So I'm like Satan when I cause them to sin. I'm enticing them into sin. I'm enticing them into something that they were innocent from. Yeah. It, I, th- I think you could even read this as this is, this is the consequence of if you cause an innocent child to sin for the first time, just like Satan caused Eve to sin for the first time. It's traumatic. It's against God. It's unholy. It's terrible. And God says it's better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown in the ocean. Like, and I like the term millstone attached person. <laughs> millstone attached person, a map. <laughs> Look up what else map means. Um. Yeah, they're, millsta- they're, they're millsta- mill- millstone attached people. Uh, Deuteronomy 139 actually confirms this, by the way, that children do not know good from evil. They don't. And we're like, what? how do you know that? Like, I see my kids do wrong all the time. It's because they're innocent trying to figure out the boundaries. They're, they have conflicting desires, and they don't know how to discern between the two yet. They're not very good at it. Okay, Deuteronomy 139, your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil. Oh, they shall go in there. Oh, so right there, they do not know good and evil. So if they don't know good and evil, but yet we say they're born evil, corrupt, and sinful against God, it sounds like to me that they know evil, right? So the innocent children were allowed to enter the promised land, even though their parents who had listened to the lies of what was going on in Canaan and disobeyed God and, and were forbidden from entering the promised land because of that sin, their children were allowed to enter because why? Because they did not know good from evil. They did not have evil desires that were causing them to sin to the point where God was going to remove that promise from them. In other words, they didn't know no better. Just like Romans 2, the Gentiles don't have the law, therefore... They're, uh, they're conflicting thoughts. Whoa, conflicting thoughts, the good and evil, will either accuse or excuse them on the day of, Jesus, uh, on the day of judgment by the secrets of Jesus Christ. Oh. Yeah. Oh, there's that inclusivism coming in. I know, I know. And Hebrews draws a strong parallel to entering the promised land of Canaan and entering eternity with Christ. Right. So it's a, it's a really good application here, I think. And then we see the Yetzer actually, because James literally describes how sin occurs. Like, it's not from birth. Nowhere does it say it's from birth. I hope that's been very clear up to this point. But James actually breaks it down in 114. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, the Yetzer, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Seems pretty straightforward to me. 
Desire, desire brings birth to sin, and then sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. And then, uh, but James 4, 17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So there has to be knowledge of something here <laughs> in order for it to be considered sinful. You have to have knowledge of it, which is why they said that sin still existed before the law, but sin became greater after the law because the law revealed sin. Does this, I mean, it, it, it seems so obvious, actually, now that, you, you know, what, now that I understand it. So um, th that's why. There has to be knowledge of it. So John, 1 John 3, 4 through 5 says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness because, again, as I mentioned before, where there is no knowledge, there is no sin, mm -hmm. and uh, the law reveals sin, right? So therefore, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and, in, and sin is lawlessness. You know why he appeared, you know that he appeared in order to make, take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. So in other words, there has to be a change, right? You shift in your knowledge and your understanding, and because you have a knowledge now of Jesus Christ, now you seek to obey him. Those who love me, keep my commandments. So now you seek to obey him because he's, he's not just a savior, he's a Lord. I think it's just one of these topics. I think once you see this, you can't unsee it. This whole presupposition of original sin just doesn't actually compute with Scripture. Especially Romans. It, like, Romans and Hebrews, it just kind of really falls apart. It really eviscerates it. And you can, if you at least go through this practice, even if you're like, Brian and Will are wrong completely, I want you to just read these verses without the presupposition of original sin and just see if it makes sense. And see if it makes maybe a little bit more sense. Right. Because that's a good way to see if you, you're interpreting Scripture correctly. Remove some of the biases that you're taking to Scripture. Read it with a, with essentially a blank lens as much as you possibly can and see what you think. Right, because notice this as well. Um, and that's and I agree with that because, again, just look at this. That's what I did. I started looking at it. I started realizing some of these things, like for all have sin, I'm stretching its context to mean from birth, right? Mm -hmm. um, same thing with Romans 5. I'm stretching the context. And once I start realizing that if I were to take everything from of many and all in that passage to mean from birth, then that would actually lead to universalism. And I was like, well, that's not right. So maybe he says, oh, wait, he's comparing life and death uh, with the way of Adam and the way of Christ. This makes sense. Sin is referenced so much in the Bible, and it's just fascinating to me how it's never, and we've shown you now, it's never shown that it comes from birth. Right. So or conception even. Right. So now we see in Romans 4.15 that no law means no sin. For the, the law brings, brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So there's no sin without the law. And he is actually talking about that as far as Gentiles is concerned, right? Romans 2, for all who have sinned without the law shall all shall perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For in Gentiles, who do not have by nature, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, because they're made in the image of God, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So many rightfully wonder, uh, essentially, at the end of this, is why then do babies die? I think that's a, that probably another question, right? Like, well, babies aren't... It's a if, good question to ask. Yeah, if sin brings forth death and babies still die, but babies are born innocent, why do babies die? Well, because we think of the wages of sin as death. But we never... But again, this is to kind of jump the gun, to think that, okay, babies must be sinful, that's why they die. 
Remember, sin is a corrupting force. But why? Because why did they die? They were separated from what at the beginning? We were separated from the tree of life. Tree of life. We are separated from the tree of life. After all, this is because we fail to understand that Paul here is actually discussing spiritual death. When he talks about the wages of sin is death, he's talking about spiritual death in that passage. He's not talking about physical death. The wages of sin is death. So he's talking about spiritual death, okay? So the second death is what he's referring to. And verse 21 in that same passage makes clear that the end of those things is death, but Christ offers eternal life. So we talk about the eternal state. He is speaking of the uh, that eternal state, and the reason babies die is because we are mortal now due to being separated from the tree of life. Hence, God's words in Genesis, right, of the, um, we have to separate them from the tree, lest they live forever. The tree of life sustained us mortally. We have to understand this part, which is why it comes back into the restored Eden in Revelation 22 through 2 through 3 at the it's very really end. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool because it comes back to sustain us forever and ever. Those who are separated from it and God's presence are actually bound to live in a cursed world. The problem of dying infants is actually more of an issue for those who believe in original sin and total depravity because this would posit that children are born sinners and thereby actually deserve hell. I would just posit that we are all, that once you, when they said you sin, you will surely die, is because the corrupting force of sin has now entered you. You will die and you are separated from the tree of life and it can no longer sustain you. So therefore, everyone is mortal because it's separated from that tree of life. So in point of fact, if we actually inherit Adam's guilt, this would contradict many parts in scripture, like in Ezekiel 18, 20, John 9, 1 through 3, or Numbers 14, 18. And just really study that Numbers 14, 18 now. Don't misread that. Check out what he's saying. Um, because in reality, let's, I just really want to make sure we just hit this home at the end. This is the, our, the kind of the end thoughts. In reality, children are not evil, vipers and diapers, not wicked sinners, evil against God. They are described as things that we should be like, we should emulate, have the faith of a little child so that we can enter the kingdom, be like one of them. And in Psalm 127.3, straight up says that children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. And then other also in Psalms that children are like arrows in the hands of a mighty man and blesses a man whose quiver is full of them. Yeah. Be careful that you're not using the same language that the pro-abortion crowd is making to rationalize abortion. They're the ones calling them um, leeches. They're calling them parasites. They're calling them non-human. They're calling them um, deserving of whatever they want. They're right. They they are describing them as something that actually is deserving of death, deserving of wrath, deserving of destruction. And if you adhere to original sin and you want to stay entirely intellectually consistent with Augustine's position, John Calvin's position, non-told depravity, then you have to accept that baby, when it's aborted, you would have to describe it in the same way that a lot of the pro-choice crowd is describing it, which I think is just abhorrent language that doesn't compete with reality, doesn't compete with scripture, and surely doesn't compete with God creating us in his image. Right. And so, guys, um, when it comes down to this, it's okay to deny original sin because it doesn't add up in scripture. Uh, we see that mankind becomes sinners. We see that sin uh, is definitely a thing. We definitely have a fallen moral rectitude. But we never see in scripture that we're born evil. Um, that were born with our hearts against God. In fact, I remember as a child having conflicting desires. Um, I was a very sensitive kid. I wanted, I wanted to please people, but I also, I had 
evil desires and I would want to act out on them. And I remember, you know, sitting there going back and forth and restraining myself sometimes, not restraining myself other times. You probably remember similar memories. And this was just because, guys, we are of Adam. We are of, we're living, there's two ways to die, buddy. There's the way of life, which is Christ, or the way of death, which is Adam. So choose you this day whom you will serve and have them choose life, as, as uh, it says in the Torah. Choose life. And life is only in God. And so I think that we have this idea of original sin misconstrued, and it actually creates a lot of theological problems, and it causes a lot of problems with reality and with our evangelism. Mm -hmm. I think if we just accept the fact that, oh, we're born with knowledge of good and evil, which leads to desires, and then we act out, and especially when we have knowledge of he who knows to do good but does not do it to him, it is sin. And sin happens when... I have a desire from temptation, and when I act out on it, it is sin. And when sin comes to full fruition, it leads to death, right? And so, anyway, that is that. This is our entire original sin episode. We had to take a lot of notes and condense them. There's yeah. a lot more I could talk about. I could talk about Ephesians. I could talk about a lot of other places for quite a while, but we're just trying to do one episode to kind of get you guys started. And that's kind of our method. We'll do one long episode where we go over like a large chunk of it and we go, okay, I feel like we've given you enough information for you to go out yourselves and do the research yourself and see if what we say holds up and mm -hmm. look at those other passages that might raise question. Yeah. And shout out to Warren again, Idol Killer. Um, we used a lot of his his notes and research in this as well because it was well, really well done and it, it just I think he had a really good way of laying it out so we kind of mimic some of that that right layout absolutely too. well I mean because it was that thing when I was having issues reconciling that his his playlist actually helped me go rationalize it and then once I started studying Judaism more because I was actually around the time I started studying Judaism more mm -hmm. um it actually was like oh great I'm this makes a lot more sense I was reading the Tanya at the time and I just happened to like a little bit after that I get to the chapters where he talks about Yetzers for like hours on end so anyhow hope this was helpful for you again don't forget to like and subscribe smash that like and subscribe button i apologize that our episodes lately have been long but what our goal is right now is to get out large chunks of systematic theology so that way you guys have it as a reference and then we can move on to like rebuttals or response videos or social discussion on christian on issues that christians should be involved in things yeah. like that we want to move on but we all first feel like we have to get our systematic theology out there so you guys understand where we're coming from. And if you disagree, let us know why you disagree in the comments below. We will try to engage you as always. But if, of course, if you want to engage the most, please join us on the Facebook page, The Church Split Apologetics. Uh, we'd love to have you there. So anyhow, anything else, Brian? That's it. Appreciate everyone watching and listening and look forward to all the conflict. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> awesome. Well, guys, take care and God bless.